Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with Von Moore, the executive chairman and CEO of AIT. Von, how are you today? Very well. Thank you for having me. We're here at the Future Supply Chain event in Northwest Arkansas. We're broadcasting here out near the floor where a lot of activity, a lot of folks are talking about what the future of supply chain looks like. Your path in terms of journey and what you've built at AIT has been a different path than what a lot of founders have gone through and a lot of executives have gone through. You've actually done a lot of M&A and have built a business that does about $2.5 billion in revenue. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, it's been a bit of a wild one. And yes, I would say a little bit unusual. Uh, I ended up uh, working for the company uh, in 2002 and then decided to do an internal buyout, leverage buyout of the founders uh, in 2012. So it's a little different where you were working for a company and you say, okay, I'm going to go out and do a leverage buyout. That's not your everyday thing you're going to hear about. But there are paths that you learn on how to do that from a formula standpoint. And I've helped a few people in the industry itself. But being able to do that with a single banking relationship was truly um, an interesting mark, to say the very least. But what you do is once, you, once you've done something like that, you have to actually execute. And for us, it's been an amazing growth ride. Uh, I bought the company when it was a little under $300 million in 2012. As you say, today is uh, almost $2.5 billion. But there's a couple of stops in there that are really interesting to understand. Um, one first is that when you expand out in your organization, you've got to look for areas that are beneficial, right? That really have an impact on your bottom line and watching the trends, watching what's happening. For us, we adjusted very quickly to international freight and then we adjusted into the home delivery world very quickly. Um, that was something that mattered uh, that really wasn't happening in our company at the time. Um, but what's happened too is that we've been able to find that trying to go up a mountain by yourself is very difficult to do with a single banking relationship. And we brought in private equity uh, in 2017 that I think really changed the face of our company and helped us grow exponentially overall. And maybe there's some points you might want to ask me about that on it. So, so you guys used debt originally, Correct. funded, ha had a bank essentially capitalize that to help buy out the Correct. founders, $300 million company. Over time, as you were scaling, the need to bring in private equity to help finance additional growth was really where sort of took that second generation of the development of the company. Who, who are the private equity funds that backed you guys? Well, the first one was Quad C out of Charlottesville, Virginia. And a couple of items I would say that really mattered, I would give advice for anyone looking at M&A and especially in the private equity world, uh, I'll give you this. I didn't quite trust private equity at first. It was a little awkward in the sense that you'd heard some horror stories. And I went out years in advance before I ever went to process and got educated. I went to the conferences, found out who was good. And what I learned is there's two different types of private equity uh, companies. One that's an operating management company, operating partner, or, or one that's a financial partner. And I only wanted a financial partner. I didn't need uh, the other level of expertise over my shoulder. But sometimes that's needed in a business. You never really know. So uh, I found a financial partner in Quad C that was just wonderful. We were able to achieve our goals in um, what was planned for five to seven years, we achieved it in three years. So we were able to exit them out, bring in another financial partner uh, in the Jordan companies out of New York that have just been phenomenal. And we've just had a crazy year, as you would imagine, of growth that so many of, of uh, the companies in the industry are just performing so well in this last year, not just COVID related, but just really executing on what the plan has been 
throughout. Yeah, it's amazing how, like, as a percent of freight, the third-party logistics industry represents and how fast just organically the industry is growing, but also the scaling of the businesses that have what, what that's enabled businesses to actually scale that have a successful path. You, you mentioned the process of going out and meeting with investors. You know, FreightWaves is a venture back. We have a growth equity partner. But I often say that the best kind of investor is one that will pick up the calls, show up at the board meetings and pick up my phone when I call them, but I don't want to hear from them interimly. Uh, characterization. It, it's, it, it is difficult, though, when you go and you meet with a lot of private equity firms, you hear con- constantly about how helpful they are. And then they talk about their plan to come help you. And it becomes a lit as a founder, you're like, I don't know about that. Yeah. Was that, did you have the same experience yeah. and sort of reaction? You also hit on an interesting word because there's a word they use a lot when you're speaking to them or giving them an update about your company, especially when you're giving a presentation during a process, they always respond with, that's helpful. <laughs> so you're like, what the heck does that mean? Like, what do you mean that's helpful to you? What, I'm not sure what you're saying. But you got to find the right partner to be able to have someone that is truly helpful to you, right? And know that you have that relationship with them that they know where to plug in. I know in my world, I never made acquisitions prior to uh, getting the private equity firm involved. So for me, being able to have a level of expertise gave me confidence on being able to go out and execute on those acquisitions, especially ones that were overseas. Uh, that was a little daunting. And being able to figure out Really, the, the, the secret sauce is not who you say yes to. It's who you say no to in the acquisition side because they can drown you and they can be an albatross. And that's really where private equity, I think, earns their keep when they're able to be able to direct you correctly. So when you're doing M&A and you find a really interesting company, out of the deals that you look at, how many? Of, what's the percent that you actually close? It, it's extraordinarily small except... I would say we try to be very diligent to not burn calories on companies we know we're not going to probably buy. So we're not going to be in a process that's going to drag out that we're just going to waste all this time and money. No, either A, we're not going to win to pay the multiple or whatever that may be. But also it may have in the, in, in the industry, they talk about it being a little complicated or having some challenges. We usually steer away from whatever that is. So a small one, it's less than 10% of what you actually close. I might even argue it might be in the realm of 5% of what you truly look at. And you need to be prepared for that. And you also need to have a group that if you can't just use your executives as to be the only people looking at it. You need to have a wide variety of people being able to say, okay, look at it from this lens because it takes a lot of time. And you don't want your executives doing that and not running the business. So one of the challenges talking to a lot of companies that have done M&A to grow quickly is as the business gets bigger finding deals that actually matter. Because as you mentioned, and I think anyone who's, who's ever done a transaction, it doesn't matter how small the business is or how big it is, it often takes the same amount of time. Correct. And so how do you, at, a, at the scale at which you're at, to really be meaningful, you need a big deal. How do you source those deals? And then it just, the universe gets much more finite as you get bigger. How do you maintain that growth trajectory? Yeah, I think there's two, there's a couple of areas. One, obviously you have to work your network that they know who you are and that you're known to be a good acquirer because I think that matters. People know who's a good acquirer. Before I answer the, uh, your question though, I, I want to point out, it's we lead first on evaluating the culture because if it's not a cultural fit, we're wasting our time. 
and the company you're acquiring needs to know that the company uh, fits into the culture and that there's similarities. Your core values need to have commonality. All those things need to play into it because if not, the employees are going to feel major trepidation and uncomfortable when you acquire them and they don't feel very good about how they fit in. So culture first, I would definitively state that. Now the other side of the challenges on it when you're looking at, yes, our company and our scale now at almost two and a half billion, it's, they need to be chunky, they need to be material. But when, with that being said, one of the hardest things that have been done in, our, in our, excuse me, our industry is companies still remaining flexible. And I use the term all the time that I want the cement to still be wet at our company, no matter what uh, level they come in, whether they're working on the dock, they're in customer service, or they're an executive, I want them to feel like they have a voice and they're making a difference. But keeping the cement wet, the larger you get, is a challenge. And it was one of my premier reasons of why I left a larger organization uh, in 2002 to come to a smaller one to build it. And that's really what I hold myself responsible for. So, Brian, the word culture, every company talks about culture. What is AIT's culture? Well, I first would say that one of the things we do differently than, than most that I've heard of is we actually have tangible measurements for our culture. So we have a core value index score that we actually are measuring ourselves by our core values that we publish. So, um, you know, how, treating our customers, you know, uh, earning our customers trust, uh, treating our employees where we, we've earned the right to know that they're appreciated, all those things that really matter, they, we're actually measuring it. So, we hold ourselves to a very high bar. In fact, that, uh, this particular year, we expect an 87% um, measurement on that, meaning that we are hitting 87% of all of our core values with every employee throughout the, co the, the country, excuse me, the world, and that's 2,700 employees. So being able to measure it, measure it means a lot more than just words on a wall. We're actually asking every employee their feedback and making sure that we're hitting on that. And the 13% that we're missing on, all that means is it's something that we have a point to grow on. And if you're getting 100%, people are lying to you. Yeah, right. So you need to know that there's something we can work on. And something I'm very proud of is that that number, that 87%, we've been very uh, uh, clear on what that has been. And last two to three years, we've been in that range. So you've done a number of international acquisitions. Culture, when you go to other countries, is different. Correct doing an acquisition in the United States is culturally challenged, period. But you're adding an element of international culture just in terms of how a society operates and the rules and laws and regulations and sort of how that dictates culture. How do you, when you're underwriting something like that, how do you get comfortable that you're able to fit it into the broader AIT story? Yeah, I think first you start with, you, you have to have a strong compliance department because you got to make sure all those compliance pieces are done right. Then you convert over to the cultural side. You need to be sensitive. And I think the best companies that you see that are most successful uh, lead with empathy. And when you lead with empathy, you actually are aware of what's going on culturally around the world in individual offices. The other thing I would say about acquisitions and expansion as a whole into other areas of the world, um, if when you really take the time to understand what's going on culturally, not just from that country, but maybe from that company that you acquired, they may do something better than you. So we learn from each other. Just because we're the larger uh, acquirer doesn't mean that we have all the answers. We may learn a better way of doing things from those companies that we acquire. And oh, by the way, when we recruit people in our organization, we actually find that those people bring something really good that may be better than what we do. Because I believe Better is better. 
and that's what matters. That's not bigger is better. Better is better. So how do you, I mean, valuations have been really, really inflated for the last couple of years. That's good as a business has raised money. It's challenging when you're finding acquisitions that you can underwrite, that you want to purchase, because I think everyone recognizes that at some point, valuations will become under pressure. We're already seeing that just yeah. in terms of Tamping the public up. markets have sold off. There's conversations in the private markets, particularly for later stage companies. How do you sort of think about valuations? And has that evolved in the past 12 months? In the past 12 months, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, if you go 12 months ago, it was at its almost peak, right, of many valuations, depending on what industry you're describing and what particular sector they were in. Those valuations are tamping down a little bit. But the good news is, I don't believe that's slowing down too much in the United States. I think there's Challenges in Europe right now with what you're seeing in the financial world. Uh, private equity pins down on a lot of deals. Banking not providing loans and debt to, that they were at the pace they were before. Um, but I believe that in the United States, we're going to still remain strong from an acquisition standpoint. And I believe those valuations will stay relatively healthy. They just won't be at the peak, the highs that they were 12 months ago. Does, do you have an advantage in an arbitrage being an American-based company, American capital, American markets? And being able to buy businesses that are not in the United States, where you're able to use sort of this valuation arbitrage element, is that a part that of the strategy? That is absolutely a part of our strategy. Uh, we've been able to take advantage of that. And I think with this new market that we're describing of what's going on in Europe, I think we probably will get even more uh, looking into that sector uh, just because of what it brings with ha what's happening with the banking finance world. So you can imagine there's arbitrage available, and it has been now for a while and part of our success. Yeah, and, it, and it, imagine just from an exit for a founder or perhaps a sponsor that was involved in a prior deal, the fact that you're an American company that has, you know, you have a lot of advantages being a U.S.-based company from a capital market standpoint, that gives them a path to maximize value, but also give you guys a really nice sort of discount on value as if yeah. it was an equivalent American. Correct. I mean, there's, listen, every time you make an acquisition, you want to do it for two reasons. It needs to be accretive. That may be financial, but it also could be from the service they're providing. It makes you're building that out for the client, right? So you have a better service that you're offering, which hopefully will build better EBITDA along the way. But you have to have arbitrage in those, um, those acquisitions. That only makes sense. And frankly, that's why we're in business. We're supposed to make money, right? We're supposed to be responsible in doing that. And We've had a great run with that. We expect to continue to do it. And I believe also with what's happened in the economy, rising tides float all boats in our industry. And I'm very proud to be a part of what we do in our industry because we've been able to reach our hands out and help other companies and talk to them about how they improve. Because if we're all doing well, that means the overall market share that you can gain is out there. And there's a big gap between our size at $2.5 billion and the 12 billion, 16 billion, 20 billion dollar players. There's a lot of room for growth. So what, what is your sort of take of the digitization, the venture capital? Some would argue it's a bubble. Some would argue that, that they're transformative and they're going to build the next great innovation and next great platform. Where do you sit on that? Do you think that companies that have, that sort of operated under more traditional financial metrics are going to be having much more resilient outcome than perhaps some of the more speculative bets that are venture-based? Well, you're asking me a question uh, with an audience around the entire building that's technology-based. So, hey, I'm, uh, I'm challenging I'm, everyone I here. I do not so. want to get challenged with that group, but I'll, <laughs> I'll answer it this way. 
when you're faced with challenges of a recession or uh, a, a slight pullback, I believe that when you're able to go back to basics, those things really help uh, be able to get you through something. But listen, I think uh, technology is here to stay as being a major part. And I think AI is something that's really helping uh, our industry become more and more effective at what we do. And we, we measure as a company our profit per house airway bill, which goes all the way down into our actual employee productivity, which the more we can measure and the more we can do through a technology base, uh, I think the more efficient and better we're going to be. And that leaves more dollars to be able to grow and be able to build as, as we grow as an organization. So looking out five years for AIT, what is the story of the company in five years? What is it that we will be hearing from AIT in 2027? Well, I certainly, as I stated, it's not just an aspect of bigger uh, is, is bigger just to get bigger. We want to be better is better. And for us, it, it's going to have to be a growth component, though, too, not just in dollars, but in what are we doing, right? Are we in the right sectors? I believe we are. I think our vertical markets are going to continue to grow. I think we're going to be competing with the larger players, especially over in, in Europe. Um, and we have them as a target. Uh, I want our story and our legacy, though, to be not only what we've done in scale and size, but that we've given people a place to really uh, not only find a great home from a career standpoint, but many of them to be able to monetize, find ways to be able to make money. And in some cases, maybe even uh, changing the, the lives of their families or maybe multi-generations, depending on their level in the organization and where they are. I think that type of legacy, when you're able to do that in our industry, that's our responsibility when you're in a place where you can give a formula for that and you're able to give back to people in the organization and well beyond. I think that really matters. And that's the legacy that I want for us. Uh, we will be a, a global juggernaut. There's no doubt. We're on our way to it now. But I want to have that reputation where good acquirer, good steward of what we do in the industry itself, and that our people know that they've been appreciated. That matters to me. I mean, you've grown the business eight times, right? Eight hundred percent since you since you uh, recapitalized it and bought it. Thinking back for the past ten years, the one thing that you did not know that if you could go back in time and had a time machine, you could go back ten years and tell yourself an assumption that you made that was incorrect. What would that be? Or better said, if there was a founder that was sort of thinking about the same strategy. What one piece of advice would you give them? Well, I think one of the areas that you you get nervous about is uh, you don't know what's you can't control the economy, you can't control COVID impact, you can't control all those things. So if I were to know the outcome of that from an employee base, I would have been able to hopefully uh, find ways to hire in people earlier because we were all really worried at the beginning of when COVID hit as to whether you're going to have to lay people off. And then you held back about hiring during that process because no one knew what the outcome would be. So if I knew that we would weather the storm so well and, and perform at such a high level, because listen, we have the same challenge everyone has, and that's the labor challenge at this scale and growth. And I don't want too much responsibility and burden on our employees for the amount of workload that we're putting on them with our scale. So I would have probably adjusted to hiring when others were contracting back at that time uh, on a faster rate. So you think doubling did. down? I would have doubled down at that time. And so as we think about the future, when the market gets a little shaky at times, your goal is to use that as an advantage for growth? Yeah, I think there's something that we've seen as a formula that could work very, very well. And the good news is we still performed beautifully and still had a great outcome. But you asked, and I think that would be something I would do differently. Well, Bon, really appreciate your time. It's been a 
fascinating conversation. Just thinking about what the story of AIT is, what it's becoming and what it will become, I think is uh, just a fascinating growth story. And it's something that I think a lot of folks could study to see how do you build successful companies? There's a lot of ways to build them. And certainly what you've done from an NA perspective speaks for itself. Well, I appreciate your time very much. We're excited for the future. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you.